Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton may be one of my favorite pieces of art of all time. If you haven't listened to Hamilton yet, do yourself a favor and give it a listen. I promise you will not regret it. So the play focuses mostly on Hamilton's origin story and political career that eventually leads to his duel with Aaron Burr. But only one song is devoted to the duel itself. So this episode, I want to take us back to 1804 and dive into the specifics of the duel and its profound effect on both its winner and American politics. My name is Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. Episode 4, The Duel at Dawn. In the early morning of July 11th, 1804, two rowboats made their way across the foggy Hudson River from Manhattan to New Jersey. In each rowboat sat an orphan turned revolutionary, turned lawyer, turned statesman, turned founding father. Two men who helped write the first stanzas in the great American experiment where we exchanged one George for another. In one rowboat sat Aaron Burr, the sitting vice president of the United States. Burr was a short man with deep, dark eyes under bushy, arching eyebrows. He was American aristocracy. His grandfather was Jonathan Edwards. Yes, the sinners in the hands of an angry god, Jonathan Edwards. With that kind of fire and brimstone in his family tree, you can take a guess just what kind of upbringing he had. His parents both fell ill and died when Burr was very young, so he was forced to protect his parents' legacy from a young age. A cunning politician, Burr climbed to the position of Vice President of the United States by age 44. In the other rowboat sat Alexander Hamilton, a bastard orphan from the Caribbean who didn't even know his real birthday. From an early age, onlookers could tell that this child was brilliant. So some wealthy men paid for him to go to the British colonies to attend King's College, which we now call Columbia University in New York City. Hamilton was a sort of intellectual gunslinger, tailor-made for greatness. After college, Hamilton thrived in the colonies becoming a leading figure in the revolution and working as George Washington's chief aide. He was appointed treasury secretary and quickly became one of Washington's most important cabinet members. His financial policies helped shape America's fledgling economic system. In the rowboat with him sat a leather crate containing a pair of Wogden hair-trigger dueling pistols. Dueling is not unique to 19th century North America. Dueling has been around since humans have been around, but regulated rules and official systems of formal dueling date back to the Middle Ages. The judicial duel, better known as trial by combat, was a fairly common occurrence in European history. Hostilities or disputes were often settled by a duel, with several medieval towns even having laws governing them. Swords were the most favored dueling weapons, until gunpowder made pistol duels far more common. During the Renaissance, attitudes began to change about dueling, and it became less universally accepted. Several cities actually tried to ban dueling outright, but punishment was rarely carried out. During Louis VIII's rule in France, he pardoned over 8,000 men from their now illegal association with duels. By the time of the Enlightenment, dueling had become much more rare in Europe. However, dueling remained wildly popular in the United States. George Washington even had to outlaw dueling in the Continental Army 
as too many of his officers were falling victim to duels. See, the fledgling American Republic was seen as savage and wild from post-Enlightenment Europe's view. Dueling fit right into that narrative. Burr's rowboat landed in Weehawken, New Jersey at 6.30 a.m. This little strip of wooded beach beneath the cliffs of New Jersey was a common dueling ground. New Jersey had just outlawed the practice of dueling just years before, but they were notoriously timid in their persecution of the practice. Burr's seconds, William Van Ness and Matthew Davis, jumped into the knee-deep water of the Hudson and heaved the vessel ashore. Burr jumped out into the sands and studied the wooded strip of land. Burke checked his pocket watch while Van Ness and Davis began clearing the dueling field of underbrush. The men worked in somber silence. Burr watched the waters of the Hudson until another rowboat emerged from the fog. A few minutes before seven, Hamilton arrived along with his second, Nathaniel Pendleton, and a doctor, David Hossack. Burr glared at Hamilton in his opulent gilded coat and expensive leather vest. Burr's eyes narrowed to see Hamilton was wearing glasses. Hamilton didn't seem to notice Burr and began to examine the dueling ground himself. Hamilton and Burr's seconds met to discuss terms. This was the final chance for Hamilton to apologize or admit any wrongdoing, or for either man to withdraw. Hamilton's second, William Pendleton, ensured Burr's second that Hamilton was adamant that he committed no act of wrongdoing. Van Ness sighed, and they opened the trunk containing the dueling pistols. Each second took a pistol to the man they had come to represent. Since Hamilton was the one being challenged, he got to choose where he stood. He picked the north side overlooking Manhattan, now just barely visible through the dissipating morning fog. Burr's heart raced as he watched Hamilton adjusting the hair trigger and testing the balance of the weapon. The same weapon that had killed his son, or the same one his son was holding when he died in a duel in this very same place. Burr's hands shook as he examined his own weapon. Hamilton was a well-known marksman, but Burr, on the other hand, was far from it. Hamilton looked to his second to signal that he was ready. Burr did the same. Hamilton and Burr stood 20 paces apart, pistols drawn at their sides. The seconds all turned their backs so if they were asked if they saw any duel on the morning of, they could say no while still technically being honest. One of the seconds held a handkerchief in the air. Burr took a deep breath. The handkerchief fluttered back and forth in the morning breeze. As soon as it fell, they were free to fire. As Hamilton looked towards Burr, he remembered when he first saw Burr instructing troops on artillery positioning when he first joined the Continental Army. As Burr stared back at his rival, he remembered Hamilton's young face, covered in dirt, thanking him for returning to Manhattan to rescue his regiment as the British invaded New York City. As Hamilton looked over the Hudson to Long Island, he remembered Burr nearly getting frostbitten when he served as Washington's aide in Valley Forge. As Burr gripped his pistol harder, he remembered Hamilton coming into his office after the war to ask for legal advice 
of the United States' first murder trial. As the handkerchief fell, Hamilton remembered when his father-in-law's Senate seat was up for re-election, and Burr switched parties in order to run for it. As Burr raised his pistol, he remembered reading political pamphlets written by Hamilton that furiously dishonored his name after he won Hamilton's father-in-law's Senate seat. As Hamilton raised his own pistol, he remembered when Burr utilized a political party for the first time to openly campaign for president. As Burr put his finger on the hair trigger, he remembered when he tied Jefferson in electoral votes to be president, and the decision went to Congress. As Hamilton put his finger on his own trigger, he remembered the confidential letter that he wrote criticizing John Adams that Burr made public, fracturing the Federalist and sinking Hamilton's political career. As he did, he aimed just above Burr and pulled the trigger. As a bullet flew over Burr's head, he remembered just how close he came to being the President of the United States and the one man who rallied the Federalist to vote for someone they despised just so he would lose. The one man who stood in his way stood in front of him now. Burr aimed at center mass and pulled the trigger. Dr. Hosek was waiting near the rowboats when he heard the two shots. As he ran to the dueling ground, he heard a tree branch breaking and crashing through other limbs of a tree. He arrived to see Mr. Pendleton cradling Hamilton on the ground, his expensive leather vest wet with blood. Burr stepped towards Hamilton, but his seconds ushered him away, back to the beach, back to the boats. Hamilton looked into the eyes of Dr. Hosek and said, I'm afraid this one's mortal, Doctor, before losing consciousness. Hamilton's men carried him back to their rowboat. When they arrived, they found the other rowboat long gone. They loaded Hamilton into it and pushed off. Halfway across the Hudson, Hamilton regained consciousness. He told the doctor that he did not intend to harm Burr, and that he had now lost feeling in his lower extremities. They landed back in New York, and Pendleton ran to tell Hamilton's wife, Eliza, the dreadful news. Hamilton was carried to a friend's house in Greenwich Village. His family and friends were summoned, and after an agonizing 24 hours of internal bleeding, Hamilton died the next morning. Technically, Aaron Burr murdered Alexander Hamilton. Dueling was illegal in both New York and New Jersey at the time, and Hamilton was beloved by many. Burr, under the counsel of his allies, fled New York until tensions died down. The sitting vice president fled to his daughter's estate in South Carolina. He stayed there for a few weeks until things calmed down up north. Back in New York, reporters and friends of Hamilton did the best they could to piece together what had happened, and more importantly, what Hamilton's intentions were. People went to Weehawken to find the fallen tree branch, recently blown off of a tree behind where Burr stood on the dueling ground. On Hamilton's desk, Eliza found a letter condemning the very concept of dueling, until that morning he planned to throw away his shot. Federalist newspapers were quick to portray Hamilton as a heroic martyr and to condemn Burr as a cold-blooded murderer. However, 
Hamilton's intentions are still heavily debated by historians. Throwing away your shot was common in duels. In fact, only 6% of pistol duels resulted in both parties actually firing at each other. But throwing away your shot always involved firing into the ground in front of you, never into the air. Many historians believe that Hamilton's intentions did align with what he wrote in the letter prior to the duel. Hamilton was a smart man, and he knew that killing the sitting vice president of the United States was not a good way to jumpstart a political career. But his behavior seems to indicate that he was doing everything in his power to provoke Burr. He wore spectacles that morning, which he rarely wore otherwise. He took ages to examine his pistol and fired just above Burr's head. If Hamilton's intentions were to provoke Burr into doing something rash, he certainly achieved his goal. Because of a strange technicality, where the duel and Hamilton's death occurred in different states, no state believed they had the authorization to charge Burr, so the murder charges were never filed. So Burr then returned to finish his term as vice president. Because of the duel, Burr was treated strangely by Congress and government officials. Burr knew his political career was all but over. In 1805, Burr delivered a heartfelt farewell address that apparently moved even some of his harshest critics to tears. After he left office, Burr headed west into the wild unknown of the newly purchased Louisiana Territory. He met up with an old friend and current commander-in-chief of the U.S. Army, James Wilkinson. He was given command of a small regiment to scout territory near land claimed by Spain. In Burr's correspondence with Wilkinson, we see that the goal was to provoke war with Spain, with Andrew Jackson and his troops ready to swoop in when necessary. Burr then leased land from the Spanish. There were rumors that Burr wanted to start his own nation in the American Midwest. General Wilkinson told Jefferson of these rumors, and the president sent federal agents to apprehend Burr, who gave himself up willingly. He was tried for treason by the Supreme Court. Jefferson pressured the Supreme Court to enact the highest possible penalty. But as an act of defiance by the Supreme Court against the executive branch that set a president even to this day, Burr was acquitted. Fleeing political disgrace by his many creditors, Burr left the United States for Europe. He practiced law in London for several years, for a time even living with famous utilitarian philosopher Jeremy Bentham. But in 1812, Burr returned to New York to practice law under a pseudonym. He lived the rest of his life in relative obscurity. There were two casualties of that duel at dawn in 1804. One was, of course, Alexander Hamilton and any future contributions he would have made to both the Federalist Party or to America's young financial system. The other casualty was Aaron Burr's legacy. History has not been kind to Burr, and perhaps justifiably so. But Burr was not an unrepentant murderer. In fact, in many ways, he was ahead of his time. He presented a bill to abolish slavery to the Senate, and even proposed giving women the right to vote. But as we all know, we have no control who lives, who dies, and who tells your story. To this day, Aaron Burr remains one of the most tragic figures in the history of American politics. I'll leave you with this. 
Towards the end of his life, Burr was quoted as saying, If I had read Stern more and Voltaire less, I would have known that the world was wide enough for both Hamilton and me. Historium is a bi-weekly podcast devoted to telling interesting stories from history. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, follow Historium on Facebook and subscribe on iTunes. I'm Jake Barton. Thanks for listening.